Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And before I jump into what is going to be the main focus, pun intended, for this episode, I want to mention something about RCA, because we're continuing our story about RCA, and uh, something that happened to RCA in 1948. That was the year that Howard Hughes would buy controlling stake in RKO Pictures, the motion picture company, and also theater chain. RCA had purchased a theater chain and created RKO specifically in order to get a foothold with its optical on-film sound system. So if you listen to the earlier episodes of RCA, you remember they went so far as to create an entirely new film company in order to establish this technology. Well, that being done, now in 1948, they no longer saw it necessary to keep this motion picture company around and sold off the controlling interest to Howard Hughes, someone that I should probably do in a full episode about in the future, but that is one complicated cat right there. Anyway, in 1949, David Sarnoff, the man who was the, the general manager and then the president of RCA, would then become the chairman of the board of RCA. He also remained on as president of the company, so he had unprecedented control of RCA. And Sarnoff, you may remember, had a bit of a reputation of being something of a control freak, uh, someone who really wanted the company he worked for to excel, and he greatly resented anyone who appeared to stand in the way of that. Well, in the previous episode, the most recent one, I talked about how RCA was a pioneer in consumer electronic televisions and how the U.S. government forced RCA to spin off one of its two NBC radio and television networks, which would become ABC. Also remember, CBS, the third of those of the, the big three networks in the United States, actually grew out of a talent agent's failed attempts to get his clients booked on NBC radio shows. So we are now in an era in which we have three broadcast giants, NBC, ABC, and CBS. And NBC and ABC both came from the same company. CBS came out because no one at NBC would hire this guy's talent, interestingly. So television is slowly starting to pick up. And as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, RCA would push a new innovation in the early 1950s, which was color television. But RCA wasn't the only company working on color TV. CBS was also very much in the game. Both companies had been experimenting with color TV strategies since the 1940s. And it was a CBS engineer who seemed to win, at least at first. Now, I want to chat about this for a moment as well, because the system that this guy made was truly amazing. And it was de dependent upon a peculiarity of human biology. We have what some people refer to as the persistence of vision. This is the same thing that makes animation work for us. Animation or, uh, or film, if you're looking at a real film, you know, like something that's actually posted to photographic film, is just a series of still images. If we play those still images back at a fast enough speed, 
we perceive what appears to be movement, even though if you were to slow it down enough, you'd see it's just a series of still images. There's no actual movement happening. The human eye and brain can process about 10 to 12 separate images per second and can retain an image for about a 15th of a second. So if you have an image and you replace it with a new image faster than 1 15th of a second, you can create the illusion of continuity, of movement from one image to the next. Now, a common term for this is the persistence of vision. And again, a lot of the different illusions depend upon this. It's, it's this limitation of our faculties. And a guy named Peter Carl Goldmark, who was a Hungarian-born engineer who immigrated to America and then would work for CBS, would rely upon this peculiarity to create an early form of color television. And his system was an electromechanical system. Inside the television was a color wheel with red, green, and blue sections on it. And both the camera, the television camera, and the receiver or TV set had a color wheel. The wheel's positions and rotation would match precisely, and the wheels would spin at an incredible 1,440 times per minute. That was the speed of rotation. So the light coming into the camera would pass through this color wheel, which would kind of act like a filter. So remember earlier when I mentioned in the previous episode uh, that an electron beam would make 60 passes over a screen in a second, but it would only hit the odd lines on one pass and the even lines on the next pass. Those individual passes are called fields. So if you hit all the odd lines, that's one field. All the even lines, that's a second field. Two fields make up a video frame because then you have all the lines. Then you have all the lines that make up the entire picture. So that's a video frame. Now that standard wouldn't work for the color images in Goldmark's system because there would be noticeable flicker from the different colors if you were only doing this at uh, 60, really, really 30 frames a second. It would actually end up being closer to 20 because you have to divide it by three, one for each color. Instead, Goldmark would increase the field rate to 144 fields per second instead of 30. Each color would get scanned twice in a second, and the number of frames or complete images shown on screen would drop down to 24 frames per second instead of 30 frames per second. Goldmark decreased the resolution of the image from 525 lines to 405 lines, which means you're, you're making the picture smaller. Uh, and the reason he did this was because otherwise he would need a lot more bandwidth per channel to send that much information to a receiver. Anyway, because of that persistence of vision, the, these colors, while they're technically changing very, very quickly, our eyes and our brains can't keep up with that. They can't distinguish how those colors are changing so fast from red, green, and blue. So we perceive a mixture of those colors. And thus, with a combination of electronic and mechanical elements, Goldmark's approach allowed for color TV. And it gets way more technical and psychological, really, to describe exactly how this works so that you represent all the different colors, but this is the basics of how the system worked. By the way, side note, Goldmark was also in charge of the team that would develop the microgroove technology that would make 33 and a third RPM long-playing vinyl records possible. And since RCA had previously attempted to market 33 and a third RPM records, though they did not do so with a microgroove, 
I suspect Sarnoff felt Goldmark was a thorn in his side. After all, Goldmark had created a new standard for color TV and a new standard for uh, records. And uh, Sarnoff wasn't really happy when other people took the lead or other companies took the lead. RCA had its own version of the same sort of mechanical color television approach. Uh, They had developed theirs independently of Goldmark, but the CBS version provided a better picture. And so in 1950, the FCC made the CBS approach the standard for color televisions. Now, temporarily. It was only temporarily the standard. So if you've listened to my earlier episodes on RCA, you know that David Sarnoff wanted to be the leader in all things, and he was fiercely competitive, and I suspect he was very much infuriated that the FCC would choose the technology of a rival company. Actually, I I don't have to suspect. He absolutely was, because Sarnoff led a crusade against CBS and the FCC. So RCA and another company called Color Television sought an injunction against the FCC's decision to go with the CBS standard. That actually put a temporary halt on color televisions because while the matter was being decided, CBS couldn't accept any sort of sponsorship money for color television programming. So there was no money coming in to support the programming. Uh, There was very little chance to make the programming in the first place. CBS wasn't going to invest in something without knowing for sure that it could go forward with it. So it kind of put the brakes on color TV. Now, the courts rejected this injunction RCA then appealed it, and this went up the court system. And in 1951, the matter got all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court also agreed with the FCC, or at least they said the FCC had not acted improperly in stating that the CBS standards were fine. But Sarnoff was not ready to give up. Once it was clear that Goldmark's CBS approach was going to win out, RCA concentrated on moving away from this electromechanical approach toward a purely electronic method of transmitting and displaying color television. Meanwhile, CBS was running into trouble of its own. The company was finding it hard to convince a public, a a market, a consumer market, to purchase a new expensive television set. Not only is it new and expensive, it was incompatible with existing black and white broadcasts. It was a different resolution, and it was a different methodology. And in the summer of 1950, the United States entered the Korean War, which disrupted CBS's manufacturing processes, which meant the company couldn't make sets for people to buy. Only a couple of hundred sets had been produced at that point. Color television had stalled out early, and that gave Sarnoff some time to push his team into getting the all-electronic approach ready for display. So how did this electronic version work? Well, I talked in the last episode about how cathode ray tube TVs work. So I'm not going to go over all that again because it's exactly the same thing up to a point. Uh, The cathode ray tube is like a giant light bulb and it has special phosphors that glow when struck by electrons. The filament inside the cathode ray tube gives off an electron stream that anodes or positively charged elements focus and direct towards specific points or pixels on the backside of the screen surface that creates television pictures. I guess I did go over it again. 
I, I, I never learn. So how does color television work? How is it different from this? Because this approach really just means that when electrons hit the phosphors, the phosphors get excited and they start to glow. If they get a lot of energy, they glow brighter. If they get a little energy, they don't grow, glow as brightly. And if they don't get any energy, they're dark. And that combination gives you the images of black and white uh, pictures that move across your TV screen. This is happening lots of times per minute, right? Like every every single pixel is being eliminated 30 times per second. So it's pretty amazing. Or at least the electron beam is passing over, maybe not activating, but passing over every phosphor 30 times a second. Uh, 60 times for uh, uh, a second, the electron beam is actually crossing the entire screen it's only but it only concentrates on the odd lines or the even lines so how does the color television work in comparison well the basics are the same you still have the filament that generates the electrons you still have the phosphors uh, you still have the positively charged elements directing the stream of electrons you still direct the beam across the screen line by line from the upper left to the lower right 60 times per second at least in the United States but there are three ways a color TV screen differs from a black and white screen. First, you have three electron beams, not just one. And each of those beams is responsible for one of the three main colors from which all other color on screen originates. So they're called the red, green, and blue streams. Now, let me get that clear. The electron streams themselves are not red, green, and blue. They are electrons. You don't see like a red laser, a blue laser, and a green laser. We could call them streams one, two, and three, and it would be just the same. But they are responsible for specific groups of phosphor dots, and the phosphor dots are what are red, green, or blue. So one stream will only activate the green dots, one will only activate the red dots, and one will only activate the blue dots. So if you have a black and white screen, you have that whole sheet of phosphor, that substance that gives off light when electrons excite it to a higher energy state. With a CRT color TV set, you have three different kinds of phosphors that correspond with those colors I mentioned earlier, red, green, and blue. Now, I'll explain how this works in greater detail in just a moment, but first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, the phosphors in a color... CRT television are either in dots or stripes on the backside of the screen, the screen that's on the inside of the TV from where you are. And between the phosphors and the electron beams is another layer that you don't find in black and white televisions. It's a metal screen. It's called a shadow mask. And the shadow mask has tiny perforations that line up precisely with the phosphor positions on the backside of the screen to create the pixels that will create your television screen picture. So you turn on your color TV and you change the channel to something that's in color. Maybe it's Kermit the Frog singing Rainbow Connection, which is pretty sweet. So Kermit is green. So everywhere Kermit is on the screen, you have the green electron beam hitting those green phosphors to create green pixels. Uh, you also have the other beams hitting the other phosphors to change that color green to just the right uh, hue. The red and blue beams excite phosphors to make colors red and blue. So how do you get all the other colors? Well, it's by that combination that I was just talking about. The combining the phosphors uh, and combining them at different intensities creates all the different colors. So 
If you were to excite the red, green, and blue phosphors at a single pixel with the same energy, you would create a dot of white light. Those colors would combine, you would get white. If you wanted black, then you would just not have any of the electron beams hitting any of the phosphors at that pixel. Every other color is some combination of those phosphors getting lifted to that excited state by these electron beams. So in these old CRT TV sets, every single point of light on a screen, every single dot has three smaller phosphor dots behind it. And the color you see on screen depends upon which electron beams are active at that specific point in any given instant. And all of this is happening all across all the dots on the screen 30 times a second. Uh, so pretty phenomenal. So uh, I, I still find this an amazing thing. It's happening so fast that we perceive it as motion. We perceive the uh, the color as being a solid color instead of a combination of different colors. And uh, it's it appears to be seamless to us. It, it really says, one, something interesting about the limitations of human biology, that we are not able to see these differences because of actual limitations on, on us as, as bags of meat. And two, the lack of limitations on human ingenuity, that we can actually create systems that depend upon these limitations and do so in a way that's not predatory, but is uh, is beneficial, or at least entertaining. Now, color television only works if you have something capturing an image in color to begin with, obviously. You couldn't send a black and white feed from a, a camera that can only capture images in black and white and expect it to come out in color. So RCA introduced the world's first commercially available color television camera in 1952. This was called the RCA TK40. Uh, there had been previous cameras in the TK line, but those are black and white cameras. The company would then introduce the RCA TK40A in 1954, and that camera would become the first mass-produced color television camera in the world. This was the culmination of many years of work. The company had largely made the move toward developing an all-electronic approach starting around 1947. That's when they began to see that they needed to, to uh, abandon the electromechanical approach that CBS was developing because CBS was just way too far ahead. The first few cameras were all meant as prototypes and sort of developmental steps toward the TK40. So, RCA did make some color cameras before the TK40, but they were all prototypes, experiments, internal things. The first two cameras that the company developed were often referred to as the Wardman Park cameras because they were used in a special color studio in the Wardman Park neighborhood in Washington, D.C. RCA operated the studio there in part because it was close to the seat of government and therefore the FCC. So this was RCA's attempt at making a system that would be easy to show off to the FCC and then hopefully persuade the FCC to choose RCA's approach as the standard for color television. Next came a couple of cameras that were still prototypes that were referred to as coffin cameras. They were called that because the operators would joke that the cameras were large enough to bury a man inside of them. These were mainly used in RCA's New York studios at 30 Rockefeller Center. If you remember the show 30 Rock, where NBC is centered, that, that's RCA's old studios. 
Often, the tests were broadcast to the RCA Exhibition Hall, which was right across from 30 Rock, and the demonstrations were public, really public. And this was another one of Sarnoff's ideas. He was determined to bring as much attention to RCA's efforts as possible, which would create added pressure on the FCC as the public got a chance to see a color set. And more importantly, it was a color television that could still show black and white programming. Because unlike the mechanical one that CBS was developing, this one had the same number of lines of resolution as a black and white set. You could send black and white content to a color set. It would be displayed in black and white. But you could actually still watch older programming. Very important, unless you're planning on changing the entire format of broadcast overnight, which is a pretty tough thing to do once you've already established a standard. During this prototyping, the camera crews noted that the cameras would tend to get real hot, not just from the internal operations going on inside the camera, but also from soaking up energy. So one of the limitations of color television uh, in the early days was that you needed a really brightly lit studio. It's very similar to color film. You needed to have a lot of light. And those lights would get really hot, and that would heat up the cameras. Also, if you were shooting on location, you would soak up sunlight and get really hot. And electronics and heat are not – they don't go well together, typically. So in order to avoid overheating, RCA chose to make the TK40 cameras silver. That would reflect some of that light away from the camera. This was after some enterprising camera crews – had done a DIY approach and taken silver paint and coated earlier prototype cameras in silver paint to uh, deflect some of that light to, to make sure that it didn't get too hot. And RCA took a note and decided to make that an official design point. These cameras also had what are called lens turrets. If you take a, a look at old school television cameras, you'll see that they appear to have four lenses poking out of the front of them. That's actually a lens turret. It's kind of a disc that has different lenses mounted on it, and then you can turn the disc so that a different lens is actually active. So the whole purpose of this is to create different focal lengths of, uh, of lenses. Uh, rather than having to physically remove them and swap them out, they were all mounted on the camera. You could just change whichever one was active at a given time. So the common setup on one of these lens turrets was to have one 8.5-inch lens, one 135-millimeter lens, one 90-millimeter lens, and one 50-millimeter lens. And that gave the camera operator and director some options to choose the focal point for specific cameras. You know, whether it was going to be a close-up or a wide shot, they could choose whichever lens they wanted to use. Now, it was possible to change lenses during a live show. Typically, you would do so by switching to a different camera and then changing the lens on camera one while camera two is active. Uh, But this was pretty uncommon. Usually, they would just set the lenses for whatever shot they wanted, and that was what it was going to stay as. RCA had introduced lens turrets with the older black-and-white television cameras, so this was kind of a holdover from those days. Now, once light passed through the lens of one of these color cameras, it would hit a beam splitter, and that would divide the light into three beams. Each of those beams of light would then hit an individual orthicon tube. Now, in the previous episode, when I was talking about black-and-white TVs, I talked about a special component called the iconoscope, which was in charge of taking light 
having it hit a photoelectric base and then using an electron beam to scan it, and that would send out the, the signal. The Orthicon was a successor to the Iconoscope. It used a low-velocity electron beam instead of a high-velocity electron beam. The Iconoscope used the high-velocity ones. But the problem with that was that it would sometimes produce secondary electrons, and so you would get quote-unquote noise in the signal. The Orthicon used low-velocity electron beams, which would not create these secondary electrons. And again, it would use it to scan a photoelectric mosaic on a special plate inside the tube. So the light's hitting that plate, the electron beam is scanning the plate, and that's what's creating the signal. So in this case, the light comes into the camera, it splits into three beams, and each beam goes into a separate orthicon. And you can guess each of those orthicons was dedicated for a specific representation of color, red, green, or blue. And these cameras would then send that signal out to be uh, trans uh, transmitted over to the color televisions. Uh, they were large cameras. They were relatively primitive. They required lots of adjustments and tweaking to keep them tuned to the proper colors, but they worked. And the most important aspect of this whole approach was one of practicality. That was how RCA was really leaning into this technology. The CBS color television was incompatible with the older black and white sets, as I mentioned. So the CBS approach meant that you were going to have to go out and buy a brand new, very expensive television set if you wanted to watch this new programming. And you would have to have an older black and white set if you wanted to continue to watch all the programming that was made just for black and white televisions. So it was not a very attractive technology to consumers. Uh, it, you weren't able, it wasn't backwards compatible, as we would say in the, in the video game console age. So uh, this was not something a lot of people were excited about. The RCA approach was different. It would allow people with monochromatic televisions to still view color broadcasts. They just wouldn't be in color. You could tune into a color program on a black and white set. You would just get the black and white representation of that. Uh, CBS found itself stuck. There was a manufacturing issue with building out TV sets, especially during the Korean War. There was a programming issue of creating material for those sets. There was the market issue with people getting to buy new expensive technology. So ultimately, Sarnoff was able to win the battle for the color television format. The FCC would ultimately drop the standards that they had adopted that had come from CBS. Instead, the National Television System Committee, which was the second entity to have that name, previously the, the first version was formed to develop the standard for black and white TV transmissions. So this version was uh, this new organization with the same name. Essentially, it was reformed with the purpose of creating the new color television broadcast standard. It did so and published the standard in 1953, and it was pretty much the same as RCA's standard. Sarnoff had won, at least for the time being. I've got a lot more to say about what RCA did during this age, but before I get to that, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. RCA begins to manufacture color television sets. Now, now they've set the standard, now they're gonna make the actual products. Originally, the early sets had either 15-inch or 19-inch screens. 
but by 1955, all RCA sets were 21 inches in screen size, and you measure that on the diagonal. Other companies would continue to manufacture the smaller screen sets, but RCA focused on 21 as the standard. Now, interestingly, RCA was not the first manufacturer to offer a consumer color television set that was running on what was effectively RCA's color television transmission standards. Westinghouse would introduce a color television ahead of RCA in 1954. It sold for $1,295, a princely sum, particularly when you factor in inflation. If you were to do that, you would see that in today's cash, that would cost you about $12,000. RCA would follow this up in less than a month with its own first television set, color television set, called the CT100. That one had a price tag of $1,000, so about ten grand in today's cash. Pretty expensive to watch some color TV. Now, it may come as a little surprise that not many people picked up a new CT100 at that price tag. RCA pursued some pretty enthusiastic marketing strategies. In other words, they held a very expensive advertising campaign trying to get interest up. But at that price, it just wasn't going to happen. By August of 1954, not even two months after its debut, RCA would drop the price tag to $495, which was still a huge chunk of change. But at that price, RCA was actually losing money on every sale because the sets were so expensive to make. Even so, if the company had failed to sell its sets, that would have cost RCA even more money in the long run. So this was a way to get early adopters on board and pave the way for future, less expensive televisions. Color television wouldn't really pick up steam in the consumer marketplace until the 1960s. That's when the quality really improved, the price dropped, and there was more programming available to watch as well. Shows like Disney's Wonderful World of Color, which debuted in 1961, helped a lot. But color television sales wouldn't overtake black and white TV sales until 1970. Meanwhile, uh, RCA and CBS did battle over which company would define the future of television. Uh, at that same time, Sarnoff was waging a separate war about radio waves. His adversary was someone who used to be a close friend of his, a guy named Edwin Howard Armstrong. Armstrong was an electrical engineer. He had attended Columbia University. Brilliant guy, apparently one of those people who really was only interested in studying anything that directly appealed to him and had no interest whatsoever in any other subjects. Armstrong had already achieved a great deal by the late 1920s, but we're concerned specifically with his work in FM radio. FM stands for Frequency Modulation, as opposed to AM radio, which stands for Amplitude Modulation. In both cases, we're talking about changing a radio wave in some way to transmit information. So it's all about varying something, some aspect of the radio wave. And with AM or amplitude modulation, it's all in the name. It's all about the amplitude, the strength of a radio signal. By varying that, modulating the strength of the signal, you can encode audio onto a radio wave. And you have a receiver and it has a device to decode that modulation, essentially to reverse this process so that whatever information was laid on top of that radio wave can then be played back. You can convert it into an audio signal, uh, uh, an electrical signal, really, 
that represents an audio signal, send that to an amplifier, and then on to speakers. But AM has some drawbacks, and a big one is that it is it, interference really can come into AM transmissions quite easily. Stuff like electrical equipment can introduce interference or thunderstorms, and you get static and other noise that gets introduced into the signal, so you don't get a clean signal. Sarnoff wanted to eliminate all of that static, that noise. Armstrong wanted to experiment with frequency modulation, which was already a known method at that time, but had yet to produce results that were remarkably better than AM broadcasts. And as the name suggests, instead of messing with the strength of a radio wave, you mess with its frequency. You increase or decrease its frequency to encode audio on top of that radio wave. Otherwise, it's a very similar uh, system. You would have a receiver that would pick up the radio wave and a decoder that would take that modulation of frequency and convert it back into an electrical signal that would represent audio. So Armstrong believed that the reason why FM had not really shown to be better than AM was because earlier attempts had focused on too narrow a range for modulation. People were not uh, changing the frequency enough, essentially. So Armstrong began to experiment with wideband FM. He filed and received five patents for his approach, and he had an agreement with RCA that said the company was going to have the right of first refusal on any patents that Armstrong was able to secure while working in FM. He demonstrated his system to RCA. RCA would actually test it out fairly uh, extensively in the mid-1930s. And it was pretty clear that the system was superior to AM for the purposes of radio broadcasts within a given region. AM signals could be picked up further away than FM in most cases. But RCA was so focused on developing television that relatively little attention was given to the FM developments and ultimately Armstrong wasn't presented with any sort of deal for his work. A short while later, Armstrong brought his ideas to some other companies. Now, RCA wasn't doing anything with them, and his intent was partnering with those other companies and licensing his patents in order to start changing radio stations over from AM to FM, which would actually require lots of work. It would require uh, not just a, a format switch, but new equipment. FM and AM transmitters and receivers are not compatible. You can have both in the same radio set. If you have a receiver, it may have an FM receiver and an AM receiver, but they are two separate receivers. They're not, it's, it's, it's not a, a compatible technology. Again, because you're looking at different modulations and you're looking at different sizes of radio waves as well. So in 1940, RCA says, you know what? This FM thing makes a lot of sense to us now, now that we're really looking at it. Uh, we've got a deal to make with you. And they presented Armstrong with a really attractive contract. He would get a cool $1 million, which in today's money is around $18 million. In return, RCA would get a royalty-free license to use his FM patents. It was supposed to be a non-exclusive deal, however, so RCA would not get the exclusive rights to use this. They just wouldn't pay any royalties on anything they earned, and in return, Armstrong would get this $1 million fee. However, Armstrong had already made arrangements with other companies to license his patents, and they had to pay royalties 
on everything they sold. Anything that made use of one of his patents, he would get a little cut of it. And he felt like if he signed this agreement with RCA, it wouldn't be fair to these other companies that had to pay him every time they sold something. If RCA didn't have to do the same thing, how is that fair? So he refused. He said, I'm sorry, this deal's not going to work with me. And that ticked off Sarnoff to no end. So Sarnoff directs his engineers to work on FM tech of their own. Rather than license Armstrong's work and give him royalties, he says, forget it. Let's just make our own FM tech. And the company starts to develop systems that they claim do not infringe upon Armstrong's patents. RCA then took another step because Sarnoff isn't pleased with just trying to sidestep Armstrong. He wants to punish Armstrong. And the company begins to encourage other companies to not license Armstrong's patents. In other words, cutting off Armstrong's source of revenue. Because Armstrong's not making radios himself, he's licensing his designs to other companies. And now RCA's saying, oh, don't do that. He, you know, We've come up with our own FM transmission stuff. Don't bother paying him for this stuff. So Armstrong goes and sues RCA and NBC, and he's pretty confident he's going to win right off the bat. But the legal proceedings lasted much longer than he anticipated, and the expense drained his personal finances. By 1950, some of his patents had actually expired, so he couldn't even really leverage those anymore, and the lawsuits were continuing. Meanwhile, his mental health was deteriorating. He felt strongly that he was being cheated out of his money and the credit for his work. And what's worse, this mirrored something that had happened to Armstrong earlier in his life. He had worked on an invention that he felt he was responsible for, but ultimately the credit went to a different engineer. So he felt like this was happening all over again. In the winter of 1954, after having driven away his own wife, he, he actually hit her during an argument, and she had left him to leave and, uh, and live with her sister. Armstrong decided to end his own life. He jumped out of the window of his 13th floor apartment and uh, landed on a, on a balcony 10 stories below and died. Uh, he had a suicide note in his pocket that expressed his deep regret for hitting his wife and uh, for his actions. And Sarnoff would shrug off any responsibility he might have played in Armstrong's deterioration. He said, I didn't kill Armstrong. Now, Armstrong's wife, Marion, took over the case on behalf of her deceased husband, and she pursued it with determination. At the end of 1954, RCA and Marion Armstrong reached a settlement. The amount was said to be around a million dollars, which was the fee RCA had proposed to Armstrong in return for the royalty-free use of the patents. It's a pretty tragic story. Now, before I sign off, I should also mention that at the same time, RCA was working on technology that was not meant for your average consumer. I've been focusing on the consumer tech because that's the stuff most of us are familiar with, the things we come in contact with, radios, televisions, that kind of thing. But the company had become an important partner with the U.S. military during World War II. They had developed a lot of components that were used in radar systems. But that relationship with the military continued after World War II was over. In the late 1940s, RCA developed a system called Typhoon to help the Navy test missile designs. Typhoon was a guided missile simulator. 
So the idea was that it would let Navy engineers test out different ideas, different designs under different test conditions, all in a computer-simulated environment, which meant they didn't have to go out and actually build rockets and then seek out those conditions and test them for real. That gets really expensive. It's a logistic nightmare. This way, they could do it in a simulated environment and test out these different ideas before ever committing to a specific design. Typhoon debuted in Princeton at RCA's R&D facility. It had more than 4,000 electron tubes, and it took up 53 computer racks. The room it was in had to be air-conditioned to keep everything at the right operating temperature. It was not common to find air conditioning in a lot of Princeton uh, buildings at that time before this. So RCA also developed uh, electron microscopes and the television microscope during these years, but I don't really have enough time in today's episode to go into detail on those. We'll pick up with a little bit of that in the next episode, but we're really going to try and focus on wrapping up RCA's history, uh, at least up to present day, in our next episode. So we're going to skip over a lot of stuff to hit the highlights. Anyway, RCA's work also branched out beyond electronics. Uh, I think this is something worth commenting on. The company developed reading aids for people with impaired vision, and they also had came up with a new way of producing penicillin, which seems kind of crazy, but no, it's absolutely true. RCA was producing penicillin. Uh, they used radio frequency heating during the process. So one of the stages of penicillin production requires you to remove water from penicillin shortly after you've separated penicillin out from the solution you develop it in. So you develop penicillin in a solution, you separate it out from the solution, you then have to remove as much water as you can efficiently and safely. So RCA's approach used radio frequency heating to dry the penicillin more efficiently and economically to make it viable. But before RCA could even take advantage of this discovery, before they could go to market with it, the researchers who were working on this project at RCA discovered that they could use a chemical approach that was even more effective and more efficient, producing more purified penicillin more efficiently. So RCA was able to help doctors secure sources of penicillin to treat infections around the world, which is pretty incredible. Now, in our next episode, like I said, we're going to wrap up the history of RCA. We're going to hit the highlights, uh, which is going to be a lot of highlights in a short amount of time because we're leaving off in the mid-50s. So we've got 50 years to cover. However, that being said, a lot of those years involve a lot of big general steps that can be summarized much more effectively than a deep discussion of how color TV works or FM radio. So we won't dive so much into the technical detail. But I look forward to covering that with you guys in the next episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes, send me a message. The email is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find different ways to contact me there in the archive of the episodes. Also, don't forget to head over to tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's our merchandise store. Everything you purchase goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. We're going to be putting up some new designs there pretty soon. Look forward to seeing those. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 